You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, thank you that we can gather one more time uh, to be encouraged in worship and the pursuit of uh, truth and hope in Christ. Amen. Uh, so, uh, Gil, uh, Gil did not fire me after the last series I did, so I'm back. Um, and uh, we were strategizing about what what's next, you know, um, what 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 we might like to do for Advent. And the idea here is really back to basics. Um, Back to those sort of fundamental questions. What what do we mean when we use certain terms? What do we mean when we refer to certain religious communities? Um, because we almost take it for granted we know what we're talking about or just, you know, it's, it's just an easy sort of point of reference for us. We know what Judaism is. We know we know what monotheism is. We know what Islam, etc. Um, and, and, you know, the more, more I thought it through, I, I don't know that we do all the time. I don't know that we do. I, you know, when I say I'm a Christian, I'm saying I'm part of a particular community that's not other communities. And so the, the idea is by getting back to basics, we understand the Christian faith better in a Christian community. Um, at, at, but, but also understanding other these other faiths, the, what we would call the big three, the big three uh, monotheistic Religions: Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, there are others. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're the outside of the big three. Um, I, I'm not talking about. One was a Rastafarian. I'm just not going to talk about it. I don't. I, I encourage you to Google. Um, but I'm going to. I'm going to stick with 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 this. And. Um, and, and we, I, I want to go into this not taking anything for granted. I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to be exhaustive and satisfy in 40-minute sessions what Judaism is or Christianity is, for that matter. Uh, we, we all know that these are embedded communities of life and learning, and they're rich, in, uh, Muslims, Jews, and Christians, in terms of their cultural trajectories and, and what they uh, what they do for those communities and how they express themselves. It, this will not be an exhaustive theological study. Uh, the end goal here, as I said just a moment ago, is to understand the Christian faith in a, in a more careful way, in a more intentional way, I think is what I'm, I'm driving at. And I also want to try to leave uh, time for discussion. The other thing I don't want to do is just take anything for granted. I simply don't want to take it for granted that because we, we, we know or we live in a kind of a educated environment, which most of us do, uh, that we know what monotheism is or that we, we know exactly uh, how it manifests itself. So I want to take it piecemeal. Uh, and I hope it's not too pedantic or, or slow in the process. Uh, the word itself is pretty obvious, and the big finger there, for those listening, that's the index finger, uh, that is for mono, 
theism, it's, it's one God, right? We, we know singular, monotheistic. And so the first, the first starting point is where, what are we contrasting that with, right? If we say there is a concept available to us of a singular deity or one God, um, how do we know that or why should we know that? And, and to get at that, um, uh, I think there are four categories we've got to wrestle with. And to get at that, we've got to revisit the ancient world just for a few minutes. Um, we don't have to linger too long in the ancient world because hopefully you'll see when you look at these categories, it's the modern world also, maybe more so than ever. Uh, the first, of course, is uh, poly theism or multiple uh, beliefs, beliefs in multiple gods. And uh, these are all, including polytheism, these are categories, come on in, these are categories that emerge out of the ancient Near East. Okay? Belief and worship of more than one god. Every ancient Near Eastern culture had some version of polytheism. Okay? Every ancient Near Eastern culture. As we go more to the uh, to the Occident, as we move west, of course, we've got the more familiar. This is um, from the Acropolis in Greece, uh, Greek and Roman uh, pantheons, right? Um, and we even have uh, a, a thing called a pantheon in Rome that was believed to be, it's a church now, but it was believed to be to multiple gods, right? So polytheism is our first point of contrast with monotheism. Our second is henotheism. Adherence to one particular god out of several, especially by a family or tribe. This is the idea that we, it's polytheism with one, like a big dog, like a big head figure, right? Zeus could be a henotheistic uh, kind of construction. Marduk. Is a Babylonian um, god uh, that that fit that description. Um, I'll, I'll repeat: every Near Eastern culture had some version of Hinduism uh, available to it or expressed as well. The last two are a little different. I, I don't think we can say with confidence that every ancient Near Eastern culture had a version of pantheism or animism attached to it. Possibly, and there's evidence, but we don't want to be, uh, we don't want to cast too wide a net. Uh, pantheism, where God is identified with the universe or nature in its totality. What is God? God is the cosmos. God is our environment. Um, God is, uh, is, is, in, is, is uh, identifiable with the created order. Of things, animism uh, is the attribution of spiritual or even divine qualities to natural uh, to natural objects, plants, or animals. So it'd be a particular kind of in infusion or investment with a with a creature um, or a plant or a, maybe a, a sacred rock. I, I'm not trying to be facetious, but that's animism, right? Um, each of the uh, each of these. Uh, our categories before we can understand monotheism 
we have to have some appreciation of what it's not. And it's not these. And in that sense, it's been considered by most scholars of the ancient Near East revolutionary. Like, why? (laughs) It seems, I mean, it actually does, on the surface, seem a lot easier to worship a tree. (laughs) Um, Has a cycle of life to it. It can be quite lovely. (laughs) Um, Or maybe even a powerful animal, (laughs) right? It can kill you. It can be beautiful, etc. Or a place. Um, It also, there's something quite natural about attributing certain forces in the universe to a particular, projecting into a particular kind of personality. You know, the wind comes from a particular god. You know, storms, right? War, love, right? To take these human qualities, these these figments of human nature, and to and to and to push them outward to something superhuman, right? Like the Avengers or something, right? I'm sorry, I don't know why I said that. That's, that's not. Yeah, I've, I think my child's going to see that today. So, but um, so there, this is. Um, uh, th- this is actually in Germany. It's a statue of Zeus hurling a thunderbolt. Uh, this is um, an Indian tableau, and that's a, an Egyptian representation. All examples of these four ancient Near Eastern expressions of worship. This is the area I'm talking about here. Um, yeah, um, this is this is what we're. This is, uh, when I say the ancient Near East, this is what I'm talking about. And I just wanted to make sure we all knew where Ugarit, no, Uh, we all know, but I think the big ones we want to note are in red. Uh, The Mesopotamia, uh, Iran, Iraq, um, uh, and then pushing into Canaan, there's Arabia down here, Egypt. Uh, Crete over here would have been the Minoan and Mycenaean world of the of the Bronze Age. That's another label we can put on it, the Bronze Age, the Archaic Period, the ancient Near East. All right. And this is tied we, we group this according primarily to material culture, but some written documentation begins to emerge uh, as well that, you know, paleo uh, uh, um, we, we study like the, the the history of writing, for example. And so we do have textual history, but it's primarily material history that comes out of there that tells us who these, what these beliefs were, either through pictograph, through language, or through the archaeological record, the material culture that gives it to us. So great, there it is. I actually would push 2019. We have similar expressions we could identify with every one of these. It's just a matter of being a little creative in our imagination um, about where they might be found. So as the scripture says, nothing new under the sun. Um, We'll talk maybe about that later. The question I have for us is how do we go from these four categories in this land to this? That's a reconstruction of the Temple Mount. It's in a museum in Israel. Uh, it's the second temple, if you're keeping score. It's the second temple uh, reconstruction. Um, and 
the two questions I want us to pursue for a few minutes is why did monotheism appear in the ancient Near Eastern world and how does monotheism become the religion of the Hebrews? Like I said, I, I don't mean to be pedantic, but we're starting with basics, right? Why and how do we go from what seems to be a little bit easier to a different conceptual framework altogether of worship and sacrifice and, and faith? All right. Here, here's where it gets kind of interesting if you're not interested yet. Um, monotheism, like those other labels, are all made up. And you can say, well, well every label's made up. You're correct. But they're made up in a very particular kind of way. The, the, these labels are made up in a very particular, they're academic labels, actually. So for instance, as you probably are aware, we don't have a specific passage that says monotheism is it, right? It's an interpretive framework like Trinity. Like, you know what I mean? Which we're headed that way for the last lesson. But what we mean by that interpretive framework and how that contrasts. So monotheism is a label, as is polytheism, henotheism, uh, and pantheism. Okay? These labels emerge in the 18th and 19th centuries. Okay? It's very doubtful you would have heard a sermon uh, in the 16th, 17th century with the phrase monotheism in it. Edwards, I mean, I could be proven wrong, and, and some people enjoy doing that, and I'll take an email, and, wow, I was wrong. You were right, <laughs> but, but that's fine, um, but, but it's unlikely. And if you, if you look at Reformation literature, medieval literature, uh, theological literature, sermons, you don't really begin to see references to a concept like monotheism until the 19th century, okay? And it was an academic label. And it was an academic label that basically was designed to treat this, these two questions, okay? And uh, the signature figure here who, who brought this to, to the Western vocabulary was a guy named Julius Wellhausen, a German scholar. Julius Wellhausen, I know you're all thinking, of course, Julius Wellhausen. Julius Wellhausen is, is a very important figure in these labels and in these identities because Wellhausen said, uh, ultimately, monotheism is a product of, of evolution. It evolved. It wasn't a given, but it actually was a transformation of an idea over time. In other words, monotheism was a transformation of this into something more ethically reliable. That's Wellhausen's theory, okay? The first idea is evolution. Um, this, this got the ball rolling. This was quite a, a bombshell, the idea that um, th this is a, a, you can already sense and see this is an application of pretty tight enlightenment categories on the idea of the Old Testament, right? To read the Old Testament in a particular way and try to figure out from the sources how certain concepts emerge out of it, out of the context 
of the ancient Near East. Does that make sense? So monotheism becomes a label put on the idea of an evolutionary process that went from polytheism and henotheism to mono, one god. Okay, that's Wellhausen. The second theory, some of Wellhausen's students, you know, that's what they do. They eat their master. They said, no, 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 it wasn't uh, evolution. It was discovered. So there's the evolutionary idea of monotheism, and then there's the discovery idea. And who's our great agent? Moses. Moses discovers monotheism, right? How does he do that? Well, remember, Moses wanders around a lot, and he, he runs into all kinds of things, and he says, you know, this can't be right. And he has kind of an aha moment, right? And that's what we'll look at text here in a few minutes. But, and that's what the biblical narrative is. It's a record of Moses' discovery of monotheism. And then this is a, a more recent idea, as in late 19th century. It was, uh, it was just plagiarized. Um, uh, here, scholars do comparative literature, and they look at other ancient Near Eastern sources, and they say um, there's evidence of monotheism all over, uh, all over this world. We have evidence of, of monotheism. Uh, I'll, I'll be frank, I think it's weak evidence from the, the general reading I've done on it. Um, uh, I, think it I think what we're looking at is probably something closer to henotheism. Um, so um, uh, you, can, you can do what you will with those theories, but the evolutionary theory, the discovery theory, and the plagiarized theory, uh, you know, just taken from other cultures, are all on the table. Uh, when you walk out of out of this church, and when you walk out into uh, the world of a scholarship, or the world simply of skepticism, okay, it's all on the table. Um, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna propose something different. I'm gonna I'm gonna propose something different for this class and for our purposes and our our starting point, our presuppositions. I'm, I'm gonna suggest. Uh, something that you might already believe, and that is the idea of one God is God's own self-revelation. That we can take the narratives we have at a certain common sense value, face value, and that you don't have to be a scholar in ancient Near Eastern literature to appreciate this idea. Um, I, in, a, in a nod, though, uh, that's a Caravaggio. That's Caravaggio's sacrifice of Isaac. Anybody's looking for something for their home? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's nice for Mother's Day. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> um, so what? What am I saying? I'm, I'm saying that, that the idea of one God is God's own speaking to us. And, and to some, it's, and to the way we he breathed life into us, he's speaking to our nature and his nature, um, in in our understanding, and where this happens most profoundly and most importantly in monotheistic religion is the Jews. It's Judaism, our, our spiritual ancestors of Judaism. I want to say this as well, though, before we go a little bit further. 
and, and, and we, we should value this, even though we don't have to be scholars to understand this. The scholarship is helpful. You read the Bible carefully, and you'll, you can note some of the language. Um, there, I, I didn't write down all the passages for the sake of time, but I'm, I'm happy to, to go back and dig through it. In the conquest of Canaan, in the, in the collision with other religions, there's often the description that the God of other gods, Baal, you know, uh, other gods are there, but the God of the Hebrews is the best God of all. Does that make sense? So that language is there. And, and, and so, you know, scholars have poured over that. What does that mean that they actually reference other gods if it's just one God? And I think this has something to do, of course, hopefully we'll see with the character, power, and the attributes of the Jewish God, the, the qualities of the, of, of the God of Israel is superior. Um, and that, quite frankly, it, it probably isn't a stretch that we're talking about spiritual forces uh, of the ancient Near East when we, when we make reference to these, uh, when we see these kind of references. Questions or, or thoughts real quick. I know that's a lot. we got a little ways to go here, but I won't hold you over long. No. <laughs> All right. I want to also say this before we take one more step. Monotheism is still controversial. It's still a struggle. And indeed, as this quote from the author Gore Vidal tells, it's a long quote, but if you'll allow me, uh, when we venture into this subject, we're talking about an idea that is still contested in terms of how it has affected history. Uh, the great unmentionable evil at the center of our culture is monotheism. Uh, I'll pause. This is a speech he gave at uh, the Lowell, I believe, I believe it's the Lowell Lecture at Harvard in 1992. From a barbaric Bronze Age text known as the Old Testament, three anti-human religions have evolved. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. These are sky god religions. They are literally patriarchal. God is the omnipotent father, hence the loathing of women for 2,000 years in those countries affected by the sky god and his earthly male delegates. The sky god is a jealous god, of course. He requires total obedience from everyone on earth, as he is in place not just for one tribe, but for all of creation. Those who would reject him must be converted or killed for their own good. Ultimately, totalitarianism is the only sort of politics that can truly serve the sky god's purposes. Um, probably not going to speak here at the advent any times. Well, I think he's dead, but I don't know. Where, but, um, <laughs> the Lenten lunch series. He, he, <laughs> he, uh, he, um, I, I put that up there. He obviously has a pretty pointed agenda with that. But I put it up there to try to demonstrate that when we move into the territory, even of monotheism, we're on contested ground in terms of its moral value. And we as Christians should always keep that in mind. Let's start. Let's talk about the Jews and try to get an understanding of how the framework for monotheism becomes uh, most associated with Judaism. Uh, this, is a, this is a Torah. This is a, 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 a scroll. 
It's actually a replica in, in, in Cologne, Germany. I just thought it was a nice reference, but here, here is what we're talking about. When, 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 what, I'm, what I'm doing now is I'm trying to show us or think about the nature of authority in Judaism. Uh, we, for instance, we say the Bible is the word of God. It contains all things necessary for salvation, is the way the prayer book puts it. That's a, not the prayer book, but scripture is the first source of authority for understanding our faith. Well, to get at monotheism for the Jews, you have to do a similar exercise in authority. And this, of course, is the Torah. Or the Torah. It has, <coughs> it, there are three elements to it to keep in mind. It, it can be referencing the first five books of the Pentateuch the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament, or out, out of a total of 24 Jewish scriptures, or it can be read, somebody could be read, saying the Torah is read, really the Tanakh, or the total 24 books of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. Okay, the canon of Jewish scripture is what they would, that's the, you know, the, the completion. There's some some obviousness here when I, they don't have a New Testament, right? It, this is it. And then the third component is the oral Torah. Does, does that make so? That's the first source of authority. It, it is it is scriptural. It is written. It is the same text that we use as Christians, but we call it the Old Testament. It is the Hebrew Bible, but for the Hebrews, for the Jews, there is an additional. Uh, reference point, okay, an additional uh, component, okay, and this is the oral Torah, the oral Torah, okay, Shabal. This consists really of what we call. I'm sorry for all the terms, but there's no test. It's just I just this is Jewish authority. This is how they understand monotheism. The Talmud is the body of Jewish civil and ceremonial law and legend comprising the Mishnah and the Gemara. Uh, there are two versions, the Babylonian and the Palestinian or Jerusalem. Mishnah is legal interpretation. These are oral traditions. Gemara, a rabbinical commentary on Mishnah. Um, it's a lot. <laughs> and, you know, you, you got to sort through these categories. The way to pull back and get the big picture is we're really talking about how uh, the Judaism uh, orders its understanding of authority and religion. Okay? And these are your two components. There's a, For instance, we, in Christianity, we don't so much refer to an oral tradition as authoritative. Some of you have heard the three-legged stool model, scripture, tradition, reason, is, is one possibility. That's, that may be getting at it. You know, you start with scripture, and where scripture is unclear, you turn to the history, and then and, and finally you can, you have to think, well, what's the, the common sense answer? Um, well, I think oral Torah is an that's an imperfect analogy for what we're talking about here. Okay, so it was, and it, it's tied to the uh, exile of, of of the Jews in the Babylonian captivity, and then later it was written down. Okay, a final concept to understand is halakha. Halakha, the collective body of religious law derived from the written and oral Torah. And what is the one phrase I'm repeating? Law. Law. Interpretation of law. The meaning of law. Rabbinical commentary on law. Okay? 
Um, all of these um, uh, are, th these are our source, our background for uh, this. The significant scripture that actually tells us what monotheism is. Okay, so I'm, I'm not going to, to read all of these, but let's read the, probably the most uh, prominent one, and that is the Shema, right? The Shema, the call to prayer, the first two words of Torah. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. Uh, these other passages at your leisure, and, and maybe in the next session we'll go back and, and look through some of these. Uh, so this is the Deuteronomic um, uh, uh, picture of Moses summoning Israel and giving them the law. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God you and your son and your son's sons by keeping all his statutes and commandments which I command you all the days of your life. Hear therefore O Israel and be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey and now the Shema. Hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart your soul and with all your might. It's the beginning of every Jewish prayer. The call to prayer. It's the beginning of the Torah. We are not polytheistic. We are not henotheistic. Okay? It's the starting point. Uh, you can read Exodus 3, where Moses goes before the burning bush. And um, this is the great passage. Uh, who do I say sent me? And he says, I, God says, I am sent you. I am that I am. My being and my self-possession, my name belongs to me. Right? And then, then you can follow through with other passages in Deuteronomy. Isaiah, there's a series in Isaiah that also uh, we would say are kind of key scriptural or Torah that we can appeal to that specifically state the oneness or the unity of God. Okay, so we're going to jump quickly now. That, that's the monotheistic con uh, concept. Now I want to talk about how does this translate into Jewish practice. This is a much longer discourse than I'm about to do justice to. But to try to do justice to it, I want to talk about this guy. <laughs> we are now in Spain in the 12th century. And of course you of course we are, right? <laughs> Why are we in Spain? Well, here's the thing. In Jewish tradition, there isn't a long history of writing down what we would call systematic theology or beliefs. Okay? It was largely an ethical and oral tradition. All right? In the 12th century in Cordoba, Spain, a number of scholars converge Islam, Islamic scholars, Jewish scholars, and Christian scholars. And put that story aside for the second, for, 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 for now. But the point was they were involved in very intensive translations of ancient text, and specifically Greek text. They were very learned. Um, and this man, Moses Maimonides, 
was probably the, the he was the rock star of all Jewish scholars of the Middle Ages. And this is a, this is a statue in Cordoba. Um, Moses Maimonides is a turning point in Jewish thought for a lot of reasons, but most importantly, he for the first time set down 13 articles of Jewish faith. It, it had not been done before. Now we have to pause for just a second. This is a very significant moment because this is what Jews believe. I'm, I'm going to shock you now because this is contested in the Jewish community. <laughs> I know, I know, Protestants. Uh, they, there's all kind of, there are different interpretations of what this means, where he could have been right, where he could have been wrong, etc. But I think for our purposes, I know for our purposes, this is the spine or the center that if you're in a monotheistic, I'm sorry, if you're in a Jewish belief, whether you're Orthodox, uh, uh, Reformed, um, Reconstructionist, whatever, conservative, whatever expression it is in its subculture, this is out of Maimonides, uh, uh, is a list that you can pretty much rely on. Okay, so does everybody see this? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read them quickly just to make sure we hear them because this is important. God exists. God is one and unique. God is incorporeal. God is eternal. Prayer is to God only. The prophets spoke truth. Moses was the greatest of the prophets. The written and oral Torah were given to Moses. There will be no other Torah. God knows the thoughts and deeds of men. God will reward the good and punish the wicked. The Messiah will come. The dead will be resurrected. Give or take, and, get, and give or take the various interpretive controversies that can go with this, we can use this as a launching point for understanding the Jewish faith. Okay? The question then for this series is where are they similar and different in terms of Christianity? And, and is, where do Christianity and Judaism overlap? And I put the overlap in red. Um, the overlap is in red. God exists. God is one and unique. God is incorporeal, eternal, prayer only to God. Prophet spoke truth. No other, there will be no other Torah or law. God knows the thoughts and deeds of men. God will reward the good and punish the wicked. The Messiah will come. The dead will be resurrected. To some degree, and I know we're in heavy theological weeds here, we overlap. There's a Venn graph here between Christianity and Judaism. Okay. In blue, though, I think is where, first of all, Christians would not agree with this. Jesus Christ is the greatest prophet. He fulfills Moses' office in that regard. Um, Christians do not have an oral Torah, but we believe that the written law was given to Moses. This I, I put in red, but I questioned myself when I did that. Because again, Christology, how we understand Jesus changes how we understand the law. But I'm going to leave it in red until I change my mind. <laughs> and then, of course, <laughs> that's, there, there, you know, there's the kicker. The Messiah has come. 
I said it's a, you know, I was being a little pedantic, <laughs> but that's the that's our launching point, right? That's where we've got to move from to understand uh, these differences. So, where do they differ? Here. I put four areas where if we start with all these assumptions I've put in play, and we and we. we we put aside arguing about them, which is, I get it, we can. And we go to these four categories. Where are the main differences? The meaning, and, and by the way, I want to pause. I'm going to, th this is the last part of the series when we get to the, what is Christians, Trinity, those kind of questions. We'll develop these as well as the Bible verses. I always feel a little bad when I run out of time. But the, the math, uh, the pat, it's not the entire book of Matthew. It's actually supposed to be a section of Matthew where Christ talks about being the fulfillment of the law, right? Uh, Romans 3 is one of the most complicated passages and most obvious passages in the Bible, which talks about uh, the righteousness of God in Christ as the law, as our representative. And in Hebrews, of course, uh, Christ as the, the fulfillment of the law and the only sacrifice we have. We're going, to, we're going to work through all of those, but for the moment, I just want you to see the four categories where these religions differ. The meaning and application of law, the Messiah, Israel. Yeah. <laughs> and then this one, ethical monotheism. You see... Uh, some of you may have Jewish roots or Jewish friends or family. If you ethical monotheism is is the belief that that the Jews are called, they're called and assigned by God a moral mission in the universe, and it's tied to all these other categories. It's a religion of ethics and it's a religion of action, of moral action. Israel, the Jews, are the representative of God's love, his justice, his peace in the world. It's missiological in that sense. But if you press, if you press these things, we would not be here if we could line up with them perfectly. And we can't. And the New Testament is our hermeneutical tool to transform this. There's Romans 3. I see we're a little bit running out of time. We'll get to the text. Any any thoughts or questions? I, I, that was a lot. Yes, ma'am. I thought um, it was either the Sadducees or the Pharisees that didn't believe in the resurrection. It was the Sadducees. Okay. They did not believe in the resurrection. So you're, how does Maimonides yeah. get to that? Yeah, um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the the quickest answer would be there's some interpretive framework going and and, and problem there. The, All right, well, that was a fun brisk. All right, well, uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll pick it up uh, after Confirmation Sunday with um, Islam. So, yeah. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.